Hey everyone, Joey here, and I wanted to uh, leave a little comment before the episode started. We recorded this episode on Sunday morning uh, in advance of Tuesday's election. So first of all, any of the joking that we made was nervous energy that um, hopefully you understand was from Sunday and not uh, now. So I'm recording this uh, intro to the intro on Wednesday evening. You'll probably be listening to this on Thursday. And uh, we don't know who won. Uh, it does seem like Joe Biden will be the next president. He has a 253 to 214 lead in the Electoral College right now. He's on the cusp of getting to 270 with Arizona and Nevada, but that remains to be seen. That could still leave Pennsylvania still to be determined. So we don't fully know what's going to happen. It seems likely that Joe Biden will be the next president, but obviously this was not the repudiation of Donald Trump that was hoped for. Um, I, like many of the people who are listening to this, cast a ballot for Joe Biden on Tuesday. Uh, from one Joey to another, and for, as I said on social media, for the over 200,000 people who are not around to do it. I voted for a decent public servant and against a would-be authoritarian. And unfortunately, um, a solid 48% of the country didn't do that. They supported a racist. And that's that's the biggest thing that I think is upsetting people right now, because if you look at the ballot and you look at the result total right now, the states that Biden have, has flipped were the ones we thought he would flip and the ones he didn't were the ones that were long shots and, and, and we were getting hopeful about. You know, the overall vote is still similar to what the, the likely path to victory was. It's just that the, the Senate's not going to flip and Republicans had a better night than expected. And, you know, obviously we could have a, a debate about policy about whether Democrats or Republicans have better policy ideas, but that's not who Donald Trump is. And that's largely not what these candidates ran on in the midst of a pandemic, an uncontrolled pandemic, in fact. So there's a lot of distress there that somehow, even if we, we send Donald Trump home, that Trumpism and the idea of him and the things that he represents are alive and well and Republicans up and down the ballot and, and, States all across the country were rewarded for supporting that. And that's, that's upsetting. And that's, that's where we find our country. We have a divided country that arguably somehow is more divided today than it was a few days ago. And who knows if it's going to get better anytime soon. One hopes that Biden can, can pull people together. He certainly has made a career out of trying to do that and oftentimes succeeding. But, you know, in, in this election, he, um, has only done it a little bit, not as much as, as we were hoping. So that remains to be seen what will happen. So I just wanted to talk about that for a minute before you guys can hopefully relax and listen to a potentially fun podcast. There's some politics. If it's bothering you, feel free to skip ahead. We talk about Mank. We talk about other things. So we talk a lot about James Bond and Sean Connery. So Hopefully you enjoy, and hopefully when we record on Sunday, the uh, next episode, we, we have some clarity on this. So um, if you're feeling sad and depressed right now, you're not alone, but also know that the the odds favor a version of the outcome we were hoping for, if not the ideal outcome. So I just wanted to chime in here, and I guess my my shitty version of addressing the nation, um, you know, the the much more important Joey did that. I'm the not as important one. 
and I did it now. So hopefully you guys can enjoy this episode, and we'll be back with another one soon. Take care, and stay safe, everyone. Editor's note, this is recorded on the Sunday before the election. The following comments and concerns and general shitting of the pants reflects that. Welcome back to the Awards Radar podcast, and we're doing a special choose-your-own-adventure style, so you can choose any of the following openings for the podcast. Opening one, Tuesday goes according to plan. Well, fuck Trump, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Joey. I'm Miles. I'm Steve. And from one Joey to the next, thank God. Option two. Ah! Oh my God. The pain. The pain of it all. Uh, I'm Joey and the gun is officially in my mouth. I'm Miles and I'm standing on the ledge. I'm Steve and I'm tying a noose. And that's just if Tuesday is uh, inconclusive. So uh, leave to your own devices what the other option can be. And yes, we thought of this moments before we recorded it. How are you guys? You know, I can't complain. I mean, sitting in anticipation of, you know, American democracy never being the same again within the week is always nice. I'm I'm sleeping poorly. I'm drinking a lot. And uh, that's just the last four years. But this last weekend, it, it's definitely stepped up. So, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where we have absolutely no control over it besides voting. And yet there is the internal <clears throat> internal strife as if it solely rests on us, which is not healthy, I got to say. But also basically four years in a nutshell. So why should the last couple days be any different? Um, as you're listening to this, something will have happened, so we won't go too, too deep into it, even though that's really the only thing on our minds. But um, assuming things go the way we hope, the the hindsight being 2020 situation should be, well, duh, that's common sense. Whereas if it's not, then, you know, America was a nice idea. We got a couple hundred years out of it, so cool, I guess. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I want to start with a Filmaholic face-off. Um, the theme will be obvious momentarily. But we're going to begin with The Untouchables or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm going to go with Last Crusade just because it's my favorite of the Indiana Jones films. Uh, but Untouchables is pretty great, too, so I wouldn't be mad of either one. I'm going to second that, exactly. It's not only... Do I prefer it over Untouchables, which is also great, but it, it's the best Indiana Jones, and it's often quoted in my house. I chose poorly. Yeah, I, I do love that line. I'll, I'll go which comes I'll make up it a three from everything. Every Raiders may be my favorite of the three, but I do often say chose poorly, especially in that voice. Most of the people who don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but that's uh, that's another story. We'll we'll tell that story another time. Um, the next one is The Hunt for Red October or The Rock. I'm going to say, uh, I'll use my Sean Connery voice. I was formerly a guest here. I will go with The Rock. Okay, I guess I have to turn in my Filmaholic <laughs> card because uh, I have not seen either of these films. Oh, well, you got homework now. 
Clearly so. Um, Hunt for October is, is good. Um, I think you might end up wondering a little bit, like, why people love it as much as they do. Like, it's a good movie. But it sort of, I think it just hit at the right time when, like, Michael Crichton was a big deal. Was it Michael Crichton? No, mm. it was um, Tom Clancy. Uh, sorry. Tom Clancy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tom Clancy was at, like, the height of his powers for, like, Dads the World Over. Like, Connery was Bond. Like, everyone in it, Alec Baldwin was playing uh, Jack Ryan. Like, everything about it, like, hit. It's It was it was the closest thing people had to, like, an Avengers movie. Like, oh, my God, all these people. Um, and The Rock is, is admittedly not bad. I, I, I don't love it. I think it's ridiculously stupid. But it does have the added bonus, which you can't really discount anymore, of being a not shitty Michael Bay movie. Um, but the ridiculousness so, is part of the fun. To some degree. I mean, it it, I, it depends on your expectations. I think that, that, that matters a lot going in. I think if you go in expecting it to suck, you'll like it. If you go in expecting, like, oh, a very good movie, you're not going to like it. Um, that being said, I think I go Red, Red October as my pick, though they're both highly watchable. Um, next one is Entrapment or Finding Forrester. I've seen both, but both it's been a while for both. Um, <laughs> you remember one scene from Entrapment and the idea of Finding Forrester. Yeah, I remember the trailer from Entrapment. Burned into your retina. And for that, I will say Entrapment. This is getting embarrassing, because I've also never seen either of these movies. Well, you got a lot of homework, and... Uh, what happened? Well, he's he's a, he's a touch younger than we are. Um, and also was, was busy watching Saw movies. Um, I'm going to go Finding Forrester. I have a soft spot for that movie, even though it's a not amazing ripoff of better movies. <clears throat> wait, wait, the, is Finding Forrester the one where he goes, you're the man now, dog? Indeed it is. <laughs> okay, I vote that one. <laughs> <laughs> he basically plays um, a version of uh, um, Catcher in the Rye. Um, oh. Why, why am I spacing on his name? Uh, uh, J.D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger, yeah. He plays a version of that guy, like wrote the great American novel and like vanished, sort of. But... Um, He's discovered in, like, the Bronx or Harlem, I think, um, by, a, by a poor black student who's going to, like, a rich white school. Like, it, it has a lot of, like, the – there's a lot of movies going on in this, but it's uh, it's surprisingly, like, well done. Rob Brown's the student. He's at a, like, private high school. I don't think he's – I don't remember why he's there. Is it basketball or am I thinking of O? I don't remember. I don't think it's basketball. If it is, it's not a big deal. It doesn't, like, factor into the plot. But, like, Connery's William Forrester, who, like, didn't continue writing. The supporting cast is, like, Anna Paquin and, like, F. Murray Abraham and Michael Pitt. Oh, wow, um, okay. Buster Rhymes has a role in it, as I think he's a brother. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, Connery even acknowledged that he, like, based it off of Salinger, which is surprising, because he never struck me as, like, a prep guy. I feel like he just showed up and was like, I can do this. Don't worry. So, like, having that in his mind was probably a uh, a little bit more than I was expecting. But it's a it's a fun it's a fun uh, movie. There's some good lines. Like, uh, they're talking about there's a writing contest in the movie for the for the kid, and he uh, he asks Forrester if he ever won an award for writing. He goes, "I did once." And he goes, "What was it?" He goes, "The Pulitzer." 
you know, it's all very like that. You know, it's, it's, it's the type of movie it is. It is for all like 136 minutes. I looked at the time, but it's a, it's a Gus Van Sant movie. Though written by Mike Rich, who only does like sports movies really since then. It was his first script. The rest of his work doesn't leave a ton to be desired. Um, like he did The Rookie after that, and then Radio. He did some re- uncredited work on Miracle and Invincible. I do like those. He did The Nativity Story, which sucks. Secretariat, which is pretty good. And then Chorus 3. So, he, uh, you know, interesting writer. I'll put it that way. He's got some range on him. Yeah. And this this was like his, like, young person script that he wrote. You know, his, like, would have been on the blacklist, I guess. Right. Maybe even was. Um, so, the follow-up to this. Because we're not going to do the Finding Forrester cast. Yet. Let's see if we can get Kendall Miles. We'll do the uh, two hours on Finding Forrester. Okay. Um, what trend or genre, whether realistic or not, would you most like to see the Bond franchise chase in the future? And this question was, again, from Ryan McDermott. So we know that they are notoriously um, behind the times. Once a thing becomes a fad, they will chase it. Moonraker went to space after Star Wars was a thing. Blaxploitation became a thing, and then suddenly there was jive talk in the Bond franchise. Like, they they are never first. And arguably, they're, they're last sometimes. Um, I think we were all, like, indifferent to... Uh, um, in Casino Royale, the, like, the fighting style at the beginning of it. Casino Royale... Um, it's very parkour. It's very Jason yeah, yeah, Bourne. Yeah. Exactly. Like we'd already become used to it. It's like, oh, that's just a thing we see in the movies. And then Casino Royale is a good example of doing it well, but they don't always do it well. Um, so I'm curious what you guys think would be a, you know, trend or a genre or something they could do. And, and like you said, it doesn't have to be realistic. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Well, I hope they take this turn. It could be like a horror, you know, even though they're never going to make the Bond horror film. Well, they might they might creep up to it. I mean, I would have said they would go chasing the cinematic universe route, but they already did that with Spectre and failed horribly. So, ah, yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, I yeah, I would like to see a Bond horror film. I did read that apparently the opening sequence for this one, rather than being sort of a Bondy action film, is actually more of a flashback of like a little girl being chased by a man with a gun, and it is a bit more horror centric. Because uh, it was Kerry Fukunaga directing, who was originally going to do the It movies, and mm-hmm. he was saying apparently he got to at least work through some of the style that he would have used there. Nice, nice. Steve? This is impossible, but I would love to have seen different generations of James Bond on screen. I'm sure you could do it with CGI. I would never want to see that. But uh, especially since we've lost two in the last like three years, it's never going to happen. But I would have liked to have seen that. That's not really a style, but just something that would have been cool to have... Go ahead. I'll tell you something in a second, but go ahead. Okay. What I'd like to see, and I think most people would disagree with this, is I'd like to go back to some of the camp. I enjoyed the cheesy 80s Moonraker sexist campiness of it. Uh, I, and I don't know if you can even make those movies anymore. Need someone to sign on to that. Um, see, but so I, you want, I Roger, you want Roger Moore. You want Roger Moore to be cast again. I like Roger Moore. I, I, could, I could live without dressing up as a clown. Like, there's a nuclear bomb about to go off, but I'm going to put on perfect clown makeup. Um, I would love to see Daniel Craig the clown. They almost came close to that with Spectre for a minute, with, like, he falls on the couch perfectly, but they 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 homaged it a little bit, but didn't go that way. Um, interestingly, Skyfall was meant to have Connery initially at the uh, 
Well, he was going to be um, the character who Albert Finney ended up playing. Exactly. The addition, the initial oh. idea. I don't know if it was in the script or if Mendez came up with it, but it was going to be a home for retired 007s. So the uh, they were going to lean into, you know, Connery was really James Bond. James Bond's a code name. Once you're done, you go sit at Skyfall. That would have been amazing. Yeah, that would have been that would have been very cool. But also like changes the nature of Bond a little bit. So I guess, you know, once uh Connery was like, you know, go fuck yourself, which I imagine is exactly what he said. Um they uh then again he did agree to be the voice of a dragon once. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna have me play what? You're paying me how much? Oh, alright. I am the last one. <laughs> exactly. I don't have to do this wearing pants. Uh he would have been he would have been great during quarantine. Um, you know, I guess it wasn't the same to be like, you open up Skyfall and Timothy Dalton is sitting there. Right. Yeah. It's not quite yeah. the same. It's either Connery or nothing. Yeah. But if it was Connery, Connery Dalton and more, that would have been incredible. It's yeah. just George Lazenby and no one knows who it is. Though I, I, I'm, I maintain he's not as bad as people, people think he's in a great movie. He's just a mediocre bond, but, uh, I, uh, well, and he only my, got one chance at it too, which is, kind he of was, not fair well, he him. quit. He quit. He uh, he became a hippie. He showed up with like a like a beard and stuff to the the premiere and like pissed them off and then said he didn't want to be in them anymore. And uh, it's a shame. I think he would have grown into it a little bit. Also, considering the next movie, like you would have dealt with his grief a tad bit more. But you know, never was their way. Uh, my uh, my joke answer was going to be pornography. We uh, you know we've come so close. And yet so far away. But uh for real, I I would like them to just sort of continue, not necessarily with the genre, because they're not at their best doing that. The genre will always be like action-adventure spies. But uh continue sort of the auteur theory that they've been leaning into recently. Up until, I would say, Quantum of Solace, they, they really had never employed a director you could be excited about. Like Martin Campbell... Mm-hmm. I think exceeded expectations wildly with Scott with Casino Royale, but up until then he had done Golden Goldeneye, which is good. But other than that, he'd done like the Zorro movies and, um, unfortunately Green Lantern, but that came afterwards. But like nothing about him was oh expect a you know magnificent movie. So Kamasalas isn't particularly great, but Mark Forster is a interesting director. You know Sam Mendes is a great director. Kari Fukunaga is a great director. Uh, Danny Boyle is a great director, even though he didn't get to make the movie. So that's, you know, they, they leaning more into that would be a good idea. I know they sort of lust, lust after Denny Villeneuve. Who knows if that'll ever happen? I'm sure if Nolan wanted to do it and would agree to do it their way, they would take him. Uh, otherwise they were looking at like, uh, Jan Damage and like David McKenzie for these movies, which is closer to what they used to do. And they're both good directors, but I would, I kind of like the idea of, we have, especially the next movie, because it is going to be a new character. I'm sorry, a new actor. They can they can go big. Like this is probably the best chance. It'll never happen. But if you wanted Nolan or Tarantino or Spielberg, you know those like dream directors who've always kind of danced around the character. This is the time. Let them ha- let them make a new. Let them cast the new guy and set the stage for a trilogy or whatever, and then hand it off to one of their you know. Um, 
acolytes afterwards. <clears throat> well, I actually completely agree with that. I had often thought that if Nolan was ever going to do it, he would do the one that introduces a new actor, because then I think he would have a lot more free reign as far as the style and the tone of it, because he's not dealing with sort of, outside of it just being a James Bond movie, he's not dealing with whatever baggage that actor brought to it in previous installments. That said, yeah. Tenet and, to a lesser degree, Inception sort of feel like he's already working through his Bond stuff. So to do a literal Bond film might feel redundant for him at this point. But I'd yeah. love to see what Denis Villeneuve or someone like that would do with it. Villeneuve seems like they're going to just offer it to him until he says yes. Because he doesn't seem to have a problem with franchises. Or, you know, big budget shit. Like, there's no... It doesn't seem like he dismisses, you know, like, that sort of work out of hand. It's just whether or not he has a take. Um, we'll find out what his take is with Dune. But I... uh yeah, he, he, he would be a good pick, I think. And I think he's probably the most realistic, like, top tier pick. Whereas, you know, Tarantino would probably only make a one-off. And I don't think that the franchise wants to, like, delay the, the next wave of the franchise. You know, which, which would be an interesting choice to be like, we're not casting a new Bond. We're gonna, he's gonna make his one-off with, you know, older Pierce Brosnan or whatever he, he thought about doing. And then we're going to do the new one in the way that they kind of had like a million Star Trek movies brewing recently. But I, I, that's, that seems like a way to like disengage the franchise if it doesn't go well. So I don't, I don't see it happening. Yeah. It would be tough to sell it on one where they basically saying out of the gate, this one's not going to count. It's hard to get excited about that. Yeah. I'm wondering if the shift can be in the villains and going back to the odd jobs and Jaws, and that's, you know, that's the campy stuff I like. The the woman with the shoe that had the knife in it, and Jaws mm-hmm. biting through wires. Those elements are, are missing, and it's become kind of interchangeable spy stuff. On the podcast James Bonding, which uh, Matt Myra and Matt Gorley do, um, they go through the franchise, and they just, they haven't done it in a while, but they, they would talk about Bond a lot. And in the lead-up to No Time to Die... They had hy- hypothesized that um, because the Danny Boyle script was problematic for a number of reasons they uh, that the franchise had had issues with. One of them was they uh, had believed it was going to be a female villain. And, you know, as a more of a, like, modern times, like, scorned woman, um, potentially even, like, someone Bond had slept with, like, kind of calling to the carpet his uh, his sexism. That's, that's going to happen at some point. I'm, oh, I'm yeah, positive. it has to. You know, it'll be uh, the Javier Bardem like Spy Gone Bad. They'll do that with like the not Money Penny, but someone on that level, like someone at the agency that he'd had a relationship with, and it had gotten cut off, and that was. You know, and I'm sure they'll do it poorly because they're not. This is not their strong suit, but that'll to them will seem like. Aren't we modern? You know. The woman is powerful too, you know, which because you have to say it makes it a problem. It's like when you say you're not racist. Like if you have to say it, <laughs> we, uh, there's probably a follow up to that. There's almost always a, but, um, so I, I, I don't put a lot of stock in them doing it well, but I'm sure they will slowly move towards those, um, new waves. That's where my return to sexism comment comes in. Um, I think it would have been better to have him and they could still do this since you're going to have a new actor, new director and all that, have him go back to the 1970s, 80s bond with the overt sexism and then have him called out on it, put it straight out there and and deal with it. And you can 
speak to it, but you can also create a, a really interesting story. You heard it first. Steve wants to make Bond great again. <laughs> I, I think that's a great idea. The only problem is the OSS 117 movies. That's basically what those are in a lot of ways is a sort of Bond doing his usual stuff, but then getting called out for it. Which one? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what those are. Those are, um, it's, uh, Jean Dujardin and I can't remember the director's name, but it's the same uh, team that worked on the artist. They did these series of early Bond sort of spy spoofs. Uh, where Dujardin is playing like a French equivalent to 007, but he's, he's a bit more of a numbskull and it's played as parody, but it does have a lot of that where he's objectifying women and they're calling him out on it. You know, having such a history, a long history and the parodies, you know, you have all those films uh, throughout the years. It's difficult to, to inject anything fresh into Bond that is not going to be, uh, have the love hate uh, divisiveness. You know, I think that's the challenge that people say, uh, oh, it's like kind of like SNL. It's uh, people. It's dead. Bond is dead again, and you know. Then other people are thinking, "No, this is a great uh, kind of way to revitalize the character and the and the franchise." And other people are are upset that it doesn't uh, stick closer to to earlier Bond. It's, uh, it's always a challenge. Has a Vinicius, which I'm mispronouncing, as the filmmaker's last name, the guy who made the artist, who uh, then, like, honestly, besides those, hasn't really done anything particularly good or of note, um, which is not great. But, uh, you know, it's one of those weird things where then you go, like, could we have maybe gone, like, Bennett Miller from Moneyball? Would we have been <laughs> upset? Would anyone want Nicholas Winding Refn for Drive? Would anyone really have been upset? Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think we're going to get a wild swing with the next one, which is still three to four years away because they haven't done much work, I think, on the new Bond, but... For the moment, we'll talk about the old one. Obviously, Sean Connery passed well, away Well, they've spent the like two years just trying to release the current one. I mean, they, yeah, well, they can't think too much about the future when they've been sitting on a finished movie for almost a year now. This mm-hmm. is true. And, you know, they spent the weekend looking back on the past because of Connery passing away. So, they, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, the new one will come out eventually. The old ones will, I think, have a, a, a mild bump for the moment. But, uh... But yeah, I think that it's it's one of those franchises that I think is best when they stay in the past to some degree. Like the reinventions are not necessarily the the best part. Like I, the Casino Royale and Skyfall are great, but they also harken back to old Bond in interesting ways while being new in other ways. And that's a formula that I don't think they can simulate a million times. Like No Time to Die looks well, like right. it's trying it's to not- do that. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, no, exactly what you're saying. It's not sustainable. It's great when you want to establish, okay, this is Bond revitalized or this is Bond striking out in a new direction. But then as you see from Quantum of Solace and Spectre, it's really difficult to know, okay, what then for that new direction? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we just make another Bond movie and maybe don't do a very good job with it and hope nobody notices. Can they go back yeah. to the 70s and, and revisit? That might be interesting. I'd like to see them rather than it be a modern thing, maybe do more of a period piece. That could actually yeah. be pretty cool. There's a possibility there. Um, before we get to Connery, because I want to, I want to spend some time on him. Have you guys played the various James Bond video games? I played some of them. Um, I played Nightfire on the PS2, and uh, I played Everything or Nothing on the GameCube. I played both of those. Played obviously uh, Goldeneye, because everyone on the planet played Goldeneye. Um, trying to think, the, the, it's weird that they don't keep making them. You would think it would be, like, a ready-made franchise, but they don't 
like I'm looking now at the most recent one was going to be almost a decade ago at 007 Legends, which was like, I think went through the old, um, I think you played as all the Bonds or you played as from all the time periods. You might've been Daniel Craig the whole time, but I think you you were Daniel Craig the whole time, but you were going through like, here's the best Roger Moore one, or here's the best. Well, it was supposed to be, here's the best, but also they had like Thunderball and die another day. And like, some of the, yeah, like, the did, weird crappy ones in there. So who's to it say? It didn't, it didn't go over super well. Um, yeah, the missions like were not attractive. I didn't play it, which is a bad sign. Um, I did, I did like the PS3 ones and the, the game, the N64 one, I think still was the best. Goldeneye is the best. The ones they did based on movies were never great. Um, Tomorrow Never Dies in the World is Not Enough. They were fine, but they didn't really feel like Bond in any notable way. It was just kind of like uh, like a shooter, like where you went through the missions vaguely. Um, but the the wave that they did of like original, and I think they were all first person. Was it Agent Under Fire, Nightfire, Everything or Nothing? Though I think Everything or Nothing was a third person though. Right. They they were really good. Um, they had a lot of fun, and it felt more like you were playing a Bond game. And then they got nuts because they had Rogue Agent, which was like Goldeneye, but you're evil. They remade from Russia with love, but nobody like particularly cared about it. I think Quantum of Solace, I don't remember playing. I think it got bad reviews. And then they redid Goldeneye, which I don't think caught on, right? Nobody cared when they remade Goldeneye, right? No, or yeah, like Goldeneye Reloaded or something. If you want to buy it right now, it's $70 on Amazon. Get so they, out. So they don't even, they don't even sell it. Uh, it didn't, they don't even have copies hanging around as like a greatest hits. I, it's such a weird, like, missed opportunity. Like, I, I'm always stunned that they don't adapt them more. Same with like Batman. Granted, like, the Arkham games were doing a very good job of it, but they made Batman Begins as a game, and it was fair. And I'm still shocked they never made like a Dark Knight or a Dark Knight Rises game. Um, cause it's not a hard well, I character. Think, to I crack. think that's it. No, I think that's it right there, because as we just discussed, you know, GoldenEye being sort of the exception that proves the rule, most of the Bond games that tried to just follow the plots of the movies don't do as well, because I don't think those movies, like there's set pieces and action and stuff in them, but not enough to fill a, you know, 10 to 20 hour video game. Whereas I think the ones that were more successful, like I think Everything or Nothing is probably the best one because it felt like the missing fifth Pierce Brosnan uh, Bond movie. They even got like Willem Dafoe as the villain. They brought Jaws back. Like it actually felt like a full on production and they actually wrote a whole new story. Same with the Batman games. The Arkham trilogy has done very well because they're, you know, they take all the familiar elements, but they're still new stories. And I think that's well, you can get the most out of your game design by, you know, essentially making stuff up. Whereas if you're forced into the beats of the movies, that's where you run into trouble. Which was the two games that one was a sequel? Was Age Under Fire and Nightfire the one that has a sequel, or Nightfire and Everything or Nothing? I, I think Nightfire was a sequel to Agent Under Fire. I want to say, yeah, because one of them had, I think, a like a like a not a cliffhanger, but continued the story. And that was really, I enjoyed that. They, they, Age Under Fire, I still think is, is tremendous. Um, they're actually written, some of them were written by Paul Dini, who did a bunch of Batman comics. Oh, there you go. Well, that, that, and Danny Bill, and Danny Bilson, who, uh, who wrote, uh, 
the Rocketeer. They actually they both wrote the Rocketeer. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, Danny Bilson also co-wrote the Five Bloods this year. So go figure. No wonder we like them. But uh, <laughs> it is weird that you don't get a Bond or a Batman. I mean, I, Arkham's doing its own thing with Batman, so you can't complain that much. But in the world where you have these Grand Theft Auto or Red Dead Redemption like epic games where you can have all these different styles of game within that you don't have like a James Bond like sort of hardcore like spy stealth thing where it's much more about like investigation and, and wooing and seduction and, 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 you know, traveling the globe and then periodically shooting someone up. Like, it seems like you could make that game, but I guess with the rights, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like I, I, I do wonder why they don't do it. I mean, I would love to see a game like that. I do think the rights and sort of, you know, Broccoli and whoever the other and Michael Wilson sort of being over your shoulder being like oh we don't want to see you do that with the character oh well it shouldn't be like this it might be easier to just come up with a Bond equivalent character and do a game like that where it's in that style but you don't have to worry about legal issues Joanna Dark Perfect Dark Wait, was it Joanna Dark I don't remember what her name was yeah Perfect yeah, Dark it. yeah yeah no but it sounded like good. Yeah, yeah yeah I mean Perfect Dark was good you didn't like that it hasn't held up I, I mean, I don't think any of those shooters on the N64 held up because the N64 controller was built for some hypothetical three-handed alien creature. Yeah, I mean, I got, we got used to it. Speak for yourself. I mean, I still like <laughs> it. Um, I, I whatever. I have fond memories of that. Steve, I have little to offer here. Sorry. <laughs> He's like video games. I have children. I, I, no, I enjoy video games, but I tend to just go back to the same ones over and over. I played. Um, Gears of War three for about a decade. Uh, just because I, I go online and I play this, I, I get the same group of friends. We go online and we battle it out. See, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't go online with them as part of the problem. I, I just, I never enjoyed the online gameplay. Like, I don't need a seven year old to like blow my head off. It's not satisfying. And I, I, I played online on PlayStation when it used to be free. And uh, you know, I played like Madden. And all of a sudden, like, a seven-year-old knows how to, like, run a, like, a sweep on me every time, and they would run for an 80-yard touchdown. It stopped being fun. I'm like, oh, as soon as they pick, like, Tennessee, this was uh, when Chris Johnson was on Tennessee, and he had, I think, 99 speed or something like that. It was just like, oh, this is, I'm not even going to play you. Like, I know exactly what you're going to do. I punt, and you run the ball every time. That's why I play with the dad's club, because we're terrible. We're all terrible. It's a small group. We get four to six of us. And our our terrible our terrible listeness, our horrible yeah. horribility. I'm going to cut this out, but the uh, <laughs> our lack of skills Leave it um, are, are very obvious. But if someone doesn't show up and we try to open up one spot for uh, an outsider, they kick our ass, and then we remember how how yeah. pathetic we are. And- one of one of the only things. One of the only things I've done during quarantine is I've gone to one of my friend's apartments in Astoria and we've played video games. Like Thursday Night Football Beyond, so we'll play Madden. Like just pick the teams that are playing and just play that game. And I did not know that when you play other human beings, there's like etiquette rules. Like you're not supposed to run the clock out. Well, like, you know, um, no, you don't take a knee. You don't, uh, keep the ball away in the fourth quarter. Like, all the things that, like, I do because I like to play a realistic game, I didn't realize is what you're not supposed to do with another human being. So I I learned that. That was an interesting discovery in quarantine of 
there's a different way to play when there's another person in the room, which I guess goes for a lot of activities. Thinks fondly upon those activities. The good old days. <laughs> oh, don't say that. You know what that means. Um, speaking of games, briefly, um, I was playing a newer video game. I was playing Star Wars Squadrons, which is, uh, they're like, uh, fighter jet type game. And it reminded me of the uh, LucasArts X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. Um, granted, a much better game, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, but it made me think about the uh, LucasArts games, which I feel like are, are classics. Like, I know they're classics, but um, do we think that they're mostly because of nostalgia, or, or are they legitimately great games? And for those who don't know what they are, they, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, they were mostly like point-and-click games. Um, they did a bunch of Indiana Jones games. Um, if you're not a super, super young child, you might know The Secret of Monkey Island. Um, then they got into Star Wars because, obviously, LucasArts. They did more Indiana Jones games. Um, they had the tentacle. Zombies Ate My Neighbors, Sam and Max Hit the Road, um, Full Throttle. These were like the dig. I love the dig at the time. These were like point and click games, but they had like, they're very story centric. So whatever genre they were tackling, they would, um, they would hit pretty well. Um, Grim Fandango was another one. And then when they got back into like modern things, so like the Phantom Menace and stuff, it stopped being quite as, I think, enjoyable. But for anyone who's played it, so Steve, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but I think Miles has played some of them. Do you think they would hold up, or are they, um, like, relics of a time where we, you know, had less options, so these were the best games because they were the only games? Um, well, yeah, because I did play quite a few of them back in the day, um, and I did try and sort of revisit Monkey Island not too long ago. It got a, a remake of sorts, and then it was also available as, like, an app on your phone, and it's... I think the humor holds up possibly better than the gameplay, because I think, like you said, it was sort of, it was a simpler time, and it, they were still sort of figuring out storytelling in games, so that was the trend, so we just got a lot of games like that. I think they definitely have a certain charm to them, but they also need it, I think for today, they need a reinvention. I mean, if you want to talk about sort of the equivalent of your point-and-click adventures, um, the studio's been shuttered down, but Telltale Games mm-hmm. was doing a whole series of story-focused games with, like, The Walking Dead, um, Wolf Among back, Us, they had a Batman Back to the Future. Game, back to the Future, Jurassic Park, Game of Thrones, the whole nine yards, and they ended up bankrupting themselves by chasing after those big licenses. But they still had, for a while, the most popular sort of equivalent of that sort of storytelling, character-focused, but they enhanced it in such a way where... It was at least the illusion that your choices mattered rather than just what's the weird shaped key you have to fit into the weird shaped hole and you need to combine these three items in order to make an event happen and follow this weird circular logic that the game developer came up with. And half the time you end up uh, looking up the solution online back when you could. Um, so it's I don't know. It's I think I have a fond nostalgia for them. I don't know how well most of those games would hold up today, though. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They're not, like, I don't think we had, like, fun playing them, if that makes sense. Like, I don't, it wasn't an enjoyable experience. It was an enjoyable experience that wasn't fun, because you would just, you'd wander around and enjoy being in the world, but then realize, like, I have to open a door, and I can't just open the door. All right, now I have to backtrack to figure out where the, if there's a key, or 
oh, I have to break down the door, but I have to find an object to do it. Like, it, it just became um, monotonous and not as bad as, like, the, what was the Leisure Suit Larry? Was that, oh, like, the God. worst of those? That's like, they're barely a game. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, like, that was, they never, <laughs> like, I, I've, if you guys ever listen to other podcasts, which you shouldn't, you only listen to ours, um, how did this get played? Does uh, the video game version of how did this get made? They do. They did a couple of the uh, Leisure Suit Larry games, and I love that you can just die if you don't do exactly what the game says. But um, Telltale does a pretty good job. I never played the Jurassic Park game. I heard it wasn't one of their best ones, but I would have liked that one more. Like the idea of like, oh, you make a wrong turn, you will be eaten by a dinosaur. Um, I played the Batman ones, and I like those. And um, some of the Walking Dead one, it got a little repetitive. Though, interestingly, if you like the, like, illusion of choice type games, um, is it Super Missive is the company? They did um, Until Dawn. That's a great game. Which was really good. And then they have a franchise they're, they're doing now, um, Man of Medan or something like that. It was... Um, Sort of like Ghost Ship was the last one they did. Um, it wasn't Ghost Ship, obviously, but it felt like that. It was the Dark Pictures, I'm sorry, Man of Medan, which was um, like a survival horror thing, but set on like a ghost boat. It wasn't bad. I, I The problem with those games is I get discouraged when you die because you don't come back. And I'm like, fuck, and I just never want to play anymore. But they just put out a new one called Little Hope, which is like a haunted town kind of like thing. Didn't get as good reviews as the other two. But I do like those. I like like playing a story. Until Dawn was legitimately like playing a horror movie. Well, no, Until Dawn was great because you were going through like sort of a slasher movie setup. But like, as instead of playing as just one character, you play as the whole group of teens. And if you screwed up, one of them was dead, and that was just it. And you had to keep going with one of the characters missing, and the story would like adjust for the fact that you killed off one of the characters, whether accidentally or because you didn't like them. Yeah, so same with Man of, Man of Medan. Um, they're all quick time events to, you know, to, to live or die. And that, that became just, you know, annoying. Like, I wasn't paying enough attention and suddenly I fell off a thing and was killed. Like, goddamn. That was a character I liked playing with. Um, but they're, they're interesting. They, they, they're, they're a better example of like, you know, the stories wouldn't necessarily make great movies, but they make very good video games in a way that when you make a video game based movie, you, you struggle. Uh, the reverse seems to work when you take like the idea of a movie and make a video game out of it. They tend to go go better. Steve just shoots people online. <laughs> That's what I do. Did hey, you listen? Uh, have you ever played uh, the Grim Fandango? Did you actually play a little that bit? One? A little bit. I had um, I had this like whole um like case full of LucasArts demos, I guess, or shareware, it might have been called back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so you could play a little bit of them. So I played some Day of the Tentacle and some Grim Fandango, and they all were fun, and then you get to the point, or Full Throttle, and it would just, you'd do something, like you'd solve the first or second puzzle, like, you know, half hour into the game, mm-hmm. and it would change the trailer and show you all these better moments. Like, oh, I could be riding a motorcycle? I could be, like, fighting people? Um, but, you know... I was a kid and uh, didn't have money, so uh, they never they never came up. But I, from what little I played of all of them, I did enjoy them. I played Grim, and I remember giving up because I got to a point where everything I did, he just kept saying, "That's not on fire. That's not on fire." And I'm like, "I'm done." I, I, I clicked on everything in the room, and I'm like, I, "I'm I'm tired of chasing. What I need is the 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 cheat button, the old game genie." 
plug it in. Oh, man. Instead of 30 minutes going around room to room, opening every drawer again. Okay, get me 30 seconds ahead in the game, the next task, and, and, uh, and keep this moving. Well, yeah, I think no, that yeah. that hits at a really good point um, with games nowadays is that back then that was kind of all you had. So you would just sort of chip away at it. It's the same with those old like NES or Super NES or Genesis or whatever you might have had, where those mm-hmm. games were just punishingly difficult, uh, even if it was just like a side scrolling, you know, platformer or shooter or whatever. But that was all you had. So you would just chip away at it. Nowadays, there's so many options and there's so many different kinds of games for different kind of players that if you play something and it doesn't really float your boat, there's not as much incentive to stick with it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I had um, Battletoads, which was notoriously oh, one of like, the hardest oh, yeah. games. And I uh, watched a playthrough, but they did it on how this get played. And I, I can't believe that I made it to like the fourth level or something like that. Because you just watch and they're... They're so clearly um, like a pattern that you ha- you can only win by memorizing the pattern. Um, and apparently, the way to cheat was to, like pause it every like second to see what was coming next, and then adjust accordingly. But again, doesn't sound like fun. Weird that we spent our days doing that. Like any NES game, where like you died and had to start from the beginning. Like I don't want to start from five minutes back where I where I left off. Like I, I like. I, ugh. Like, I, I don't even restart missions in, like, Grand Theft Auto, like, Red Dead Redemption. Like, you pick up from a checkpoint. It's, it just sounds exhausting. Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a box of old games. I gave, just gave them away because I always had the intention of going back and playing them through. And I don't want to have to redo anything. I, I want the cheat. I want to keep moving forward. It's like with a video game, if you get stuck, you're stuck. And it's, it's quite painful. I don't want to have to redo it. I don't want to have to. And also, when you go back to a game after you haven't played for a year, you realize how little you remember. Uh, Red Dead Redemption is yeah. one like that. I'm, I'm 75% of the way through of the original. Every once in a while, I pick it up. I give it a good two or three days of play time. And then I put it back down for six to eight months. But there's no joy there. It's, I just want to complete it because I'm a completist. The sequel's so good. The second Red Dead is one of the only open world games of that kind that I actually, like, finished and, like, did all the side quests and, like, you know, really immersed myself in. Because I'll often I'll play some of those uh, GTA-type games, and they're fun, but at the same time, you almost get overwhelmed with too much stuff to do, and it just becomes like, oh, well, I, I just need some focus or something like that. But Red Dead, I could just, like, get sucked into that world and just, you know, have fun with the role-playing aspect of it. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't, I never 100% a game. I can't. There are too many other things to go in life. But like, I, yeah, the Red Dead is good at, was good at getting you to do other things and like go and following the side quests because they, they did seem like they were of the same story, which I appreciated. Um, same with, um, the recent Spider-Man game. Oh my God. That game's incredible. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's a reason for me to potentially get a PS5 is to play the new one. Um, they, uh, they did a really good job of the side missions being interesting and feeling like Spider-Man would be doing them as opposed to like, you know, the city's crumbling. Why am I now going to like retrieve your purse? You know, which could have been easily the, the, like the side quest though. They also had the upside of making you want to do them because of the, the new suits. Like normally that stuff is nonsense and I don't care about like another costume, but they were, they were essential to gameplay at certain points. Like you needed to upgrade to like the iron spider suit to be able to progress through the game. 
Right, exactly. Well, and also it's it's the same as like the Batman Arkham games where they're all about you feel like you're Batman, or in this case, you feel like you're Spider-Man. And a big part of Spider-Man is, uh, or of either of them really, is that sort of, you know, the daily patrol around the city. Sometimes it was uh, as much fun just to wander around and do the web swinging and, you know, wander into side missions or wander into random street crimes and stuff like that and just, you know, feel like you're doing a little bit of good and just chipping away at all the crime that's happening. Which is better, the Spider-Man or the Arkham series? Ooh, that's tough. Uh, I think we'll know soon. So, um, I would just quickly say that previous to that, the Spider-Man, like Spider-Man 2, I think it was, was the, was it PS2 or PS3 was the first to be like, you can swing around. And like, it was fine. I think Spider-Man 3 was also the same, like the swinging and web sling was fun, but the game itself kind of sucked. Right. So you're like, oh, so close. But it was cool to be like, I can swing to the Empire State Building and dive off. Like, that was cool. But now, that's one of a million cool things in the game. So, um, assuming the Miles Morales Spider-Man game is good, too, they'll be well on their way to a franchise that probably could be better than Arkham. So, I, I Arkham Asylum is great. I didn't play Arkham Origins, but I heard it was good, but not great. Uh, Arkham City is very, very good. Arkham Knight is amazing. And the new one is... See, is it tied into it, or is it another... It's unrelated. The Gotham Knights or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unrelated. Not related. It's the same idea of Batman being dead, but not because of the events of Arkham Knight, right? Yeah, which is a little confusing, because it totally yeah, could he be, but... does not. die at the end of Arkham Knight. Spoilers for well, it's le- it's left a five-year-old o- game. It, it's left open to interpretation. There's, like, an extra ending where, you know, some... Uh, a couple's getting mugged in an alley, same as his parents, and then you see a bat-shaped figure emerge, but it looks like he might be using the fear toxin. They leave it really vague and open-ended, which is kind of frustrating, because it was supposed to close out that trilogy. There should um, be a disclaimer. If you live in Gotham, stay out of alleys. Yeah, for real. There's never a good reason to be in one. Yeah, no, they... Also... I I mean, I feel like if this were to really happen, we would figure out who these people are very, very easily. You know, like, like, oh yeah. Well, they almost make a joke out of it in The Dark Knight Rises, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt just figures it out from kind of looking at him for a minute. Yeah. Whereas Commissioner Gordon is like, oh, yeah, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> Though I do love that moment. Like, if you're invested in that movie, it's a great moment. If you're kind of indifferent to, I think that's where the that Dark Knight Rises is somewhat divisive. Like, if you kind of were like, ah, this isn't doing it for me in the same way, you notice all those little things. The first time I watched it, I was. I was at the press screening, so I think we were the first crowd really to see it. There was an embargo. Because so I remember I was at my ex's apartment, and I was, like, staying up to, like, the 1 a.m. embargo or whatever. Um, you know, that moment was like, oh, this is one of the best moments in the franchise. Because if you're invested, you know, him, like, calling back to Batman Begins and, like, you know, the the same the thing that, like, with, like, the Toy Story toys. Like, Andy never gets to hear what they did for him, but he sort of expresses it at the end of 3. You know... Batman saying, you know, like, oh, in, in a small way, you you created this hero was a great moment. But if you're not invested, you're like, oh, it's really on the nose. Like, come on, man. Same with, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt being like, I mean, we're an orphan. We can tell. So I guess every orphan knew who Batman was for the last, you know, however many. And I guess also in that franchise, he's not Batman very long, is he? No, he's only Batman for, like, less than a year. And then he takes eight years off. And then he comes back for, like, two weeks. Yeah. Which is a wild choice. I think that also threw a lot of people off. Like, wait, he hasn't been Batman for that long? Like, he's not really much of Batman. 
but you know, we're 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 about a decade late on this podcast, but we're, we're yeah, hitting. I, know, I, I think I think the answer to Steve's question. I think the Spider-Man franchise will be better eventually. Right now, it's still the Arkham the Arkham games are the best still. Right. I but, mean, yeah, it's it's almost lopsided because there's, you know, I, I didn't play Arkham Origins either. I heard it wasn't great. But just out of the core Arkham trilogy, there's just so much more to chew on. I would say, because my favorite of the three is Arkham City. I think that is the definitive Batman game. Um, Asylum is good, but it's a bit more linear. And then Night is good, but they throw in all the Batmobile stuff, which really weighs it down. I like the Batmobile stuff, even though you're... I like it, but there's too there's too much of it relative to everything else you're doing in the game. There was it's too like many 60, missions 40. with it. Yeah, I, I so I so Steve, have you played them or no? I've played the first one. Okay, so the, the first uh, one, Asylum. yeah, is the first one is is great, um, but like Miles said, very linear. Um, you don't do a whole lot of Batman activities. You know, you're just kind of like trapped in it. It's a fun like quirk of the uh, of the genre, but. Um, city, you get to patrol a, like, closed off part of the city, like, you're locked in, the, like, they made it into, like, a prison type thing. So it was a, it was an interesting, like, let's give you sort of what you want, but also limit it a little bit. And, uh, Arkham Knight is almost the, the entirety of, 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 uh, Gotham. And you have the Batmobile, which was, I thought, a lot of fun, though, wildly murderous. Like, you know, Batman is. Oh yeah, you're just one. you're just running over people and shooting people, and it's it, it feels like you're back in the Michael Keaton era where just he would just murder people and not care. Yeah. So like you know they they make a big deal of him not murdering people in the game, though he does break a lot of necks. It really seems like. Yeah. Um, but in the in the Batmobile, you are just firing missiles at other cars and having them explode. Like you're you're killing a lot of people. But the the. Um... I actually own it. I just haven't played it. I, I'm too busy uh, with. Gears of War three. I don't know if you heard of that one yet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I recommend trying it. I think you'll you'll enjoy it. The Batmobile stuff is a lot of fun. The only problem is the mission type stuff. So like the Batmobile, just driving the Batmobile is awesome. When you have to use it as like a tank, um, they get frustrating because they're hard. They're not easy missions, and they um they don't move the story forward too much. So that that was a little or like the puzzles involving the Batmobile where you have to like. Shoot right, a, you have to like grapple hook. onto a thing and weigh it down, and then you had, you have to use it as a counterweight, and it's yeah, it becomes sort of it's like they're clearly coming up with ways to force the Batmobile into it rather than letting it come about naturally. Yeah, because the little bit of driving around in the Batmobile is awesome. Yeah, um, no, I agree. And then yeah, and they have a they have a pretty good like towards the end. Um, a lot of these games seem to towards the end, like when chaos sort of reigns in the city change the gameplay up a little bit. And the first time I remember that was the San Andreas. Was Grand Theft Auto San Andreas? Where like the like their take on the Los Angeles riots happened toward the end of the game. So all of the city was like in flames and like there were riots happening. And that was a a weird change. And Spider Man does that towards the end of their yep. game. Which is a really kind of fun twist. Just makes it unnecessarily hard for a little bit. Where you're like, you know, you're swinging to go do your next mission, and normally you would be like, oh, there's someone robbing someone. Oh, no, there's, like, bad police about to gun down a random person. I guess I can't ignore that. Um, and Batman, towards the end, we're like, the city is, like, basically dying. It's it, it's really well done. Yeah. Uh, but to g- get back to the original question, I think... Batman edges it out just for sheer volume of content, but I think Spider-Man, yeah, with one or two entries can definitely both get there and potentially surpass it, but we'll we'll see how Miles Morales turns out and 
sort of where it goes from there. Oh, yeah, because they could easily make a Spider-Man 2 and then a Miles Morales 2 and just have two concurrent, you know, games. That's my only concern with Miles Morales is that it may not be a full game. It kind of feels like they reskinned the uh, the original and, like, upgraded the graphics for PS5. I hope that's not the case. It just seems like it's a little soon. But maybe I'm also just not thinking of the timeline correctly. Is it enough time to have made a new game? Not a full new game. Well, I think they've even said in interviews that it's going to be more of an expansion, which to me feels like glorified DLC that's been sort of upgraded to look nice on the PS5. But I don't think it's the... It's a continuation, but I don't think it's the full-on sequel we were maybe hoping for. Yeah, that's what I... I think it's also, like, not full price. I think it's like a 40 Yeah, so I think that'll balance it out. Yeah, I mean, I'll play it. Who are we kidding? I'm an Xbox guy, but I'm looking for a PS4 as people start trading theirs in to uh, to catch up on a few games. The The, the Last of Us oh, it's and, so oh, so good. Good. So good. and Spider-Man are the two that I, I need to play. I will I will eventually have a PS5 and an Xbox, whatever the fuck it's called now, um, because they're 4K players. And I, it's one of the more cost-efficient ways to have a 4K Blu-ray. So they will eventually. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, they will eventually. Same. That was the same reason that uh, the PS3, I want to say, like had its yeah. run, was because it was a Blu-ray player, and it was two hundred and change to buy a Blu-ray player, or for three hundred dollars you could buy a PS3. So for uh, you know the Xbox had uh, what was it called back then? What was the well, other the original? HD? The original Xbox 360 was the HD DVD, but you had to buy an expansion. It was a separate, like, external drive. Because I, uh, at the time, worked at an EB Games, and they had a couple of, like, HD DVDs, like, sitting around. Like, I, somewhere buried in my apartment is an HD DVD of King Kong. Because they just couldn't sell it at a certain point. And we're like, we're going to throw it out. I was like, I'll take it. Even though I didn't have the expansion, nor was I ever planning on getting it. So, somewhere, I have an unwatchable disc. It's very on-brand for me. <laughs> this is all the hard-hitting video game conversation you expect from your film podcasts. Well, to make up for it, I've seen Mank. Oh. Ah, see? See? You guys behave and you get something nice. Um, reviews are embargoed, but we were able to, like, tweet and talk about Oscar stuff. So, um, the short answer is, uh, yes, it's very good. The long answer is I, uh, and we can discuss this a little bit, I will know more about its award chances on Tuesday. Because I feel like if Joe Biden gets elected president, we will um, not necessarily look to imbue every single movie with added meaning for a little bit. Like, if you look at what happened when, when W got elected, the movies got angry, and they got... um this is mostly post 9-11. Uh, you saw darker things start to win. There were exceptions. But, you know, you live in a world where No Country for Old Men wins Best Picture. A decade before that, that would have been sort of unthinkable. It would have been very much the exception. Um, you know, even even something like Slumdog Millionaire, which is much more optimistic, but has a, an edge to it. You know, the voters started to look at edge as a good thing, as opposed to rejecting it in favor of feeling good about themselves. And during the Obama era, there was a little bit more of, uh, you know, the artist and Argo and like things that are, that are still like good movies, but have 
and it, it, you can ignore the world a little bit more. And we've kind of flip flopped a little bit. We 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 fought a, the Green Book is a weird exception, but Parasite very much addresses the world we live in now. And Mank is probably the best option among the likely winners to go back in the not paying attention to the world, even though there is a subplot I'll talk about in a minute. But if if Trump does win, and God, I hope that's not true, um, that's where you go, like, Charles Chicago 7 or The Five Bloods or, like, Judas the Black Messiah, like, whatever the angriest movie about the state of the world can possibly be, that's probably what wins, just because people will be so furious. I can see that, especially among the Hollywood elite, which, generally speaking, tends to lean more liberal. Yeah, though there is a really interesting subplot in the movie that I think I can talk about a little bit, um, where Upton Sinclair runs for governor of California. This really happened. And, uh, you know, he was a former socialist. I think he ran, he ran on the Democratic ticket against, I think, the incumbent governor. And, uh, MGM and, uh, the sort of Hollywood elite made all these ads against Upton Sinclair that were just blatantly false. So it was sort of the, birth of fake news within a surprisingly conservative Hollywood. And that has a timely streak that I don't know that Jack Fincher thought of when he wrote in the nineties. So there is a little bit there. Like I wouldn't discount it as being uh, something that voters will latch onto, but I think way more the, the, um, the appeal for it is going to be Hollywood and it being a really accurate portrayal of Hollywood and a, and a visual clinic and, a gimmick in some ways. Like, uh, it has the ingredients to win. I'll put it that way. Um, it's also a, a gimmick that if you don't care about film history, will run thin very early on. And also, you need to be invested in the movie because at a certain point, the two hour and 15 minute movie, you can't just watch going, well, this is a cool thing. I'm watching a movie in mono. Um, so I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, but I recognize that it's, it's largely for no one. Like, this is not a movie made for the masses. When's the embargo up? Um, I believe the... Someone said the 10th, but I don't think that's accurate. But it's still about a week away, I think, um, until the reviews. I'll, I'll find out, and it'll obviously be on the site. But um, I suspect the reviews will be largely um, raves. There are there are some some tweets that were more restrained. Um, and they were among the, the, the feeling of, like, this is a really good exercise but as a movie i'm not super engaged and it's true it's 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 very much not about the the battle over credit for citizen kane that's a third act sort of turn it's much more old hollywood and navigating the politics of it and it's it's very fun but you have to find that fun you know you have to enjoy listening to old time movie talk like, they all perform the movie as if it's a movie from the 30s or 40s. There's there's digitalized changeovers, and so you have cigarette burns on the screen, which obviously Fincher has done before. But, you know, this time it's supposed to be as if you're, you're you almost as if you found, you know, the Mank biopic from 1941, you know? Um, it's really well done. Um, and not to say I'm a million times, but I'm sort of formulating my thoughts because I only saw it a few days ago. Interestingly, best in show, Amanda Seyfried. That's what I've heard, which is definitely not what I would have expected, but Fincher tends to get people you wouldn't expect to give their best work. She is 
having the time of her life playing like a like a Hollywood starlet. Uh, the 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 mannerisms and the voice like it's it really fits. Oldman is reliably good, but I don't know that he elevates the character. I think he's just such a good actor that and it's such a good role that you're you know it was always going to work in the same way that I think you could put dozens of really good actors in that role and they would all hit a home run with it. You know, you're not you're not going to think of Gary Oldman as the definitive Herman Mankiewicz. You could like Tom Hanks sure. would have done Tom Hanks would have done fine. Like any any A-lister who could fit as an old-timey looking actor would have done great. Amanda Seyfried I think brings something to that role that it could have been a throwaway role. Everything you're saying here sounds great and makes me wish that uh, being in New York, that it would have been able to be screened. Maybe it will be screened, but I don't know if I'll have access to it. But I want to see it in the theater. Would it would it play better on, in the theater, you think? Uh, yeah, I think in the same way that The Irishman played better on the big screen, just because you're you're in it. I love The Irishman, don't get me wrong. And I, I greatly value that I saw it at the very first screening at the New York Film Festival at 10 a.m. in the morning, where you have no choice but to prepare yourself for a three-hour movie. Three-and-a-half-hour movie, I'm sorry. You know, I, I think I told Miles about this a couple days ago. I That day, I I woke up at, like, 6 a.m. or something like that, because I needed to be online early, because they, they run things a little odd. But I, I had, like, this, like, go-bag of stuff. I had a five-hour energy, or probably two. I had a monster energy drink, or maybe two. I had goldfish. I had, like you know, like sucking candies. Like I had everything possible to make sure that like my attention would never move on to I'm tired or I'm thirsty or I'm bored. And I could focus on the movie because I knew once you come out of it, it's lost. Uh, and, and you can't help that sometimes, but in a movie like that, that I know content wise will be enjoyable. The up, the objective will be not, you know, getting lost in the three and a half hours. You know, being in the theater helps there. Because at home, I, I know I would have paused it, and that would hurt it. I didn't pause. I paused Mank once, just because I wanted to go back and look at the changeover again. Just be like, oh, they did it. That's awesome. But other than that, you you, you sort of just remain it. And in a theater, it would it would really it would feel like you're watching an old film, and that's very cool to me. Uh, it's yeah. I, I don't know what their capabilities are right now. I know they own the the Paris theater, but I doubt that'll be open anytime soon. So. You may uh, you may be out of luck with a theatrical experience. Amazon was screening some stuff in Newark. I wonder if that'll be the same. If they'll do, it's that. possible. I don't know what Netflix does with their theaters on a larger scale. I know they um, usually will have a couple of New York theaters. They they now I think have a, an exclusive or something with the Paris Theater, which is a giant one theater uh, complex, which is very cool. I did a Q&A there once. It's very big. It's very unusual. Uh, the Weinstein Company used to always play stuff there. But I, I think they also have the IPIC down by, like, the seaport. But all these things are closed at the moment, and I don't know when they're going to open. And moreover, I don't know when I would be comfortable going. So I don't know, considering I still haven't seen Tenet. It's okay. You guys aren't missing that much. I know I'm not, but it's more the idea of like, there's a notable movie that just is unavailable without crossing state lines. Uh, it'll it'll happen eventually. I'm sure my uh, 
Critics' Choice membership will get me a, a screener at some point, or at the, you know, just for the Joey's Home Movies column, found at Awards Radar, uh, a 4K will come my way at some point. So I'll see it. I'm not worried about that. It's more just the the irony of the Christopher Nolan theatrical experience has been denied to us. Well, and that is a shame because, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I will say this, and this is probably the great tragedy of it. It's not one of his best films by far. It's not bad, but the best part of it um, is going to be, you know, being able to see it on the biggest screen possible because that's obvious. You're watching it and it's clear from every frame that that's what it's made for. So I get why he sort of dug in his heels and was like, no, we need to release it theatrically. But also, m- most people aren't going to get to see it until either it comes to streaming or home video or whatever. And I think that is a real shame because the best qualities that the movie has are how it plays to the big screen experience. Yeah, and that's I noticed that with Dunkirk as well. Like I, I loved it. Saw it in IMAX at the press screening. It was amazing. I revisited it in the run-up to the Oscars on blu-ray just like in my room and uh it was still good but i started to be like how much longer does this have like there's something about being immersed in his experience that definitely plays into the filmmaking choices that when you're just watching it normally maybe maybe doesn't i i, I do wonder what'll happen i still have never rewatched interstellar because i saw it in imax it i was about to say away. i had I had that exact experience with Interstellar. I saw it in IMAX and was like, oh, this is amazing. This is incredible. This is visually magnificent. And there's some plot stuff that doesn't make as much sense, but I'm willing to go over it for the experience. You watch it again on Blu-ray and it's just like, oh, well, hold on. That doesn't make any sense. And your your mind is able to focus more on stuff like that because you're not being bowled over by the sheer, you know, impressiveness of the uh, storytelling and the spectacle. Which is why I have not revisited it because I love it wholeheartedly and I don't want to not love it anymore. Uh, though I, I, I do assume that, you know, whereas the first time I was like, wait, the cure for this all is love. That's amazing. I'm down for that. I think now I'll be like, Oh, Oh, come on. Come on, man. Yeah. Like that first time when he's like behind the bookshelf and in like the fucking fifth dimension or whatever. I, I just remember going, Oh my God, anything is, is going to happen now. Like we are, we are beyond the realm of what, you know, because up until then, you're just like, this is sort of within the realm of realism, or at least yeah. Christopher Nolan's version of sci-fi realism. But once she like, I'm like, so is he, is he dead? I'm like, what, what? Okay, anything. Oh, uh, okay. There's time travel now. All right, I, I got gotcha. you. You just go with it. I think when you pay attention, you may not, you may not go with yeah. it nearly as much. So uh, this was Christopher Nolan's mank. <laughs> In a way, yeah. yeah, yeah. With Tenet, I will say that. The uh, the deficiencies in the plot and the the convoluted nature of the storytelling, even if you are bowled over by the spectacle, it's hard to ign- harder to ignore that stuff than it was in say Interstellar. Yeah, I'll uh, so we we can wrap up because we'll get back to Mank once uh, the embargo lifts and then once you guys have have seen it. But uh, let's wrap up with a little little Sean Connery. So instead of uh, what we normally do. Uh, you can recommend a Sean Connery Bond movie, a non-Bond movie, and your favorite moment of his from cinema. All right. Well, since I've already been exposed as having a horrible deficiency in films of his that I've seen, I'll go ahead and wing it here. 
Do it. Um, uh, so best Bond film of his, I, I, I feel like you gotta go with Goldfinger. That to me is like, in a lot of ways, the quintessential Bond film. That's the one where so many of the tropes sort of got hammered in. Cause those first two, they're still kind of trying to find their identity and they're both great, but Goldfinger's the one. It's got that classic Shirley Bassey song. It's got one of the most iconic villains. It's got Odd Job. Um, it's got the lady, you know, being painted gold. It's like, it's got all these moments, you know, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Like, I don't know. I could go on, but that's, that's one of the greats. Um, best non-Bond Connery film. <sighs> that one I'm going to have to think. Well, no, you know what? I'm going to just go ahead and say, uh, Indiana Jones on the last crusade. Hmm. It's, you know, it's the Indiana Jones movies, you know, obviously aren't in the best place right now and don't look like they're going to get better. But that original trilogy is super solid. And I think the inclusion of Sean Connery as um, as Indiana Jones's father really lets you see the character in a new light. And that relationship and that dynamic sort of, for me at least, elevates that film perhaps a little bit above the other two. I mean, they're all great, don't get me wrong, but it's one of those things where it doesn't feel like stunt casting. It feels like his presence actually gives the movie something meaningful uh, to take with it. Uh, and then best acting moment of all time. Oh man. Um, or a line, whatever you want. I mean, I've got, yeah. Um, I mean, I <laughs> just cause it popped in my head. I think I have to go back to you're the man now dog. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it, but I've seen that line. I thought about doing that also. Um, I will, I will, as Steve figures it out, um, I would have also said the Bond film you went with, but in the interest of diversity, I will say from Russia with love because it is, um, he, they, I think they're close to figuring it out. Dr. No is a lot drier than I think a lot of people remember. It's not really a gadget movie. It's, it's a lot more like talky and it's not bad by any stretch. But uh, From Russia With Love has the action, really, for the first time, and has him, like, in an exotic location. Like, a lot of the ingredients are there. Goldfinger was just when they were like, okay, we have figured out the formula. So those two really are the Bond films of his to watch. Um, I will, though, say watch Finding Forrester. But if not, um, was it called? Family Business, I think it was called, with him and Dustin Hoffman and Matthew Broderick. Uh, really solid, like, uh, heist movie. That also just sees like him having a good time. Um, and, and in lieu of something creative, I think, you know, you have to go the name's Bond, James Bond. He, he said it and it became iconic. And part of it is the way he said it. And we'll, because he passed away, neglect to address the other things he said, perhaps not as Bond about, you know, striking a woman and things like that. When it comes to Bond, it's okay. I'm used to it. When it comes to mm-hmm. Bond, um, Goldfinger. Yeah, it seems the obvious choice, and I'm going to stick with it. Uh, it's been a while since I've revisited the older Bond films, so uh, I'll play it safe. Uh, and I'm going to, again, echo Miles here and say The Last Crusade. Um, I think, I think again, the film is fantastic, the best of the franchise. I think what Sean Connery brings to it uh, expands on, on who... Indiana is as a character, um, but also uh, just makes you care more about what's going on on the screen. It's not an adventure. It's now a family film. And I think that closing shot with them riding off into the sunset is one of my favorite shots of all time. 
even talking about it gives me the chills. When it comes to a certain line of dialogue, I don't have one, but that the scene where they're tied up, the fire is around them, they're both tied up in their underpants. The chemistry there is incredible, and I think, you know, again, what Sean Connery brings to the franchise and, and brings out of Harrison Ford, which obviously is missing when you watch the, what is it called, the Crystal Skull, and yeah. you realize how void of that, but it's just lacking something there, that I was hoping that even if they just brought in Sean Connery for a five-minute cameo, I would have, I think it would have connected the two, where it seems so broken, which I don't know if they can, if they can come back from. I'm hoping that the the fifth one becomes the film that revives and closes it out properly because again too with the last crusade that's that was the perfect ending for a franchise with the holy grail immortality off into the sunset just incredible what sean connery brought to that series uh, i think is is noteworthy fair have uh are there any bond movies either of you have not seen i haven't seen a good chunk of the roger moore ones um I haven't seen either of the Timothy Dalton ones, and I think there's one or two of the later Connery ones that I haven't seen. Well, that shoots the hell my idea to have you guys rank them for next week. I would have to do a lot of homework that I probably wouldn't have time to do. Yeah, so it's fine. It would be guesswork. I have a uh, I have a ranking, but it's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, so we can we can wrap up. Just give us some of the ranking. All right. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll pull it up. Well, while you're pulling that up, I have a little Sean Connery story that's one of my favorites about him. Um, so many people may know this, but he was offered sort of the wise mentor role in three major sci-fi franchises pretty much back-to-back and turned them all down. He was offered Morpheus for The Matrix, he was offered Gandalf for Lord of the Rings, and he was offered Dumbledore for Harry Potter. And in all three instances... Either he didn't think they would be very good, or he didn't understand the script, or for one reason or another, he was just like, nah, I'm not really interested in doing this. So he missed out on all three of those, as it turned out, incredibly successful franchises. So he finally turns around and says, okay, well, I can't miss the boat yet again, so next time one of these potential franchise-like movies comes along, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And the movie he ended up doing was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and that was the last starring role he ever had. It literally drove him from cinema. It's kind of a sad end to his career, but it also, I find it kind of amusing just how that came about. I I didn't walk out of it, but I I almost walked out of that film. I thought that was torture to watch. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, Here, so I have the 24 Bond films ranked. I'll uh, I'll just run down them, and we can can chat if something pops up. Uh, 24, Moonraker, and then they will get better from there. So we have A View to a Kill, Die Another Day. Quantum of Solace, Live and Let Die, The World is Not Enough, Octopussy, You Only Live Twice, For Your Eyes Only, Thunderball, License to Kill, Diamonds Are Forever, Spectre, Tomorrow Never Dies, and now the top ten. The Living Daylights, The Spy Who Loved Me, Golden Eye, The Man with the Golden Gun, Dr. No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Casino Royale, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and Skyfall. Okay. I probably like The World is Not Enough more than Spectre, but otherwise I don't disagree with most of that. Yeah, there are some I definitely like more than others. I uh, I like Tomorrow Never Dies a lot more than the average person. I love the evil Ted Turner as the villain. Uh, I, I think that was Brosnan's best movie, was Tomorrow Never Dies. I think GoldenEye's kind of overrated by comparison. GoldenEye's still good. GoldenEye, I think, gets a boost because it was the first Bond mov- movie in quite a bit. 
So it was, oh, he's back, as opposed to, okay, new Bond movie time. It was, oh, the franchise is back. There was sort of this looming concern that it was done before they got him and started up a Golden Eye. And it was, and it's, and it's rock solid. And I think Golden Eye also benefits in a weird way from, uh, a lot of us having played the game before having seen the entirety of the movie. So yeah. you're, you're, you're watching it kind of conversely. You're going, Oh, I remember this. This I was, I was in, I was in one of those te- shipping containers, like trying not to get shot. You know, you, your logic is a little reversed. Um, and then I just, I, the only ones I think are bad. Or Moonraker review to a kill and die another day. They're not good movies. And die, die another day is just a cartoon, essentially. So, so invisible, bad. invisible car and all that. Like they, they jumped the shark. So not like not fun, but you're, you're watching going, this isn't good. And I'm mad at them now that they wasted Roseman Pike because when they get to like spurned bond lover becomes supervillain, Roseman Pike should be that person as opposed to like second tier bond villain. Yeah, agreed. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah they got so many things wrong in that movie. And it's also a shame because they wasted the one chance that John Cleese got to be the new Q. I think if he'd gotten to carry on into some good movies, that, that dynamic could have totally worked. Yeah, he was he was R, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, he, yeah, the movie before that, they oddly sort of foretold Desmond Llewellyn's passing and and had him, like, in there, and then he got one off as the as the only one. Yeah, like he was not the problem. Um, so, how would you rank the the bonds themselves, so the actors? Uh, so, my ranking is uh, Dalton six, Roger Moore five, Lazenby four, Brosnan three, Connery two, Craig one, and just because I um, I, I have a I have a thing about Connery being the OG, and like you, he obviously set the stage for what's to come, but he he was around too long in the role. Um, not as bad as Roger Moore, who was a senior citizen by the time he was done with it, but there there was definitely an exhaustion with him by the end of just like, he didn't care anymore. So that it's 1A and 1B, but if you ask me like one Bond movie to watch, I'll probably pick Casino Royale. Just like put on. And that that sort of breaks the tie for me. How about you, Miles? I would probably agree with that ranking, honestly. I mean, I'm, I might put Dalton a little bit above Roger Moore. I think he's the most underrated one, and he, he got stuck with some not-so-great movies, but I think he had what it took to play the character well, even if they sort of push him towards playing it a bit too darkly. People weren't quite ready for it. But I agree Daniel Craig is the best. I think he's he's brought a humanity to it that makes him a bit less surface-level than some of the other ones. And uh, yeah, I agree. Connery's obviously the standard bearer. He's what everyone's compared to, but he did kind of get a little long in the tooth of it by the end. And then there's the weird never say never again debacle that uh, it kind of taints his legacy for just a little bit for me. Yeah, that's the thing. If you look at like the worst installments, which is an interesting way to do it, like Daniel Craig's worst one will almost certainly be Quantum of Solace, which is not like a bad movie. It's just it's directed a little too frenetically. And they worked on the script as they were shooting. So it feels like that. But his work is good. And, you know, his, like, personal vendetta type thing, it all fits. Like, there's a good movie within it. Connery's worst work is probably, like, Diamonds Are Forever, where he just always looks like he needs to sit down. And that's not a great look. Um, 
Brosnan's worst is dying other day. We're like, he's fine. Like he's not a bad Bond. He's just, you know, he's he's having more fun than anyone else, um, and it's not always reflected in the product. Like Pierce Brosnan of the group seems to have been the most fond of being Bond. You know, he was delighted to be there. Uh, Lazenby had one movie, so the good and the bad is the same. Roger Moore just was in camp and also was a thousand years old by the end. And Timothy Dalton, you know, was was angry in mediocre movies and just didn't fit the time. Like you said, like there's a there's a better he could have gotten a better a better play, but obviously it wasn't wasn't to be. So you know, they all they all have their charms, they all have their their fallbacks. So I don't I don't think anyone's saying that you know Connery is the perfect Bond in the sense of he created the standard. But he's not without, you know, a couple of movies where you go, oh, oh, sir, you, you, you probably didn't need to take the check this time. Well, and he also did the one where he cosplayed as a Japanese man, which is all sorts of problematic. Yeah, though, unfortunately, if you ask him, he probably would not have thought it to be an issue. But we, again, we can, we can leave out a couple of, uh, his less than, uh, stellar opinions. He was a, a man of, of layers, we'll put it. And some of the layers perhaps should have stayed inside his mind. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, in terms of Bond, there, there was, you know, I think the thing is like the generation before us, like my dad loves Connery. And that's, you know, that'll never change. Like they're never gonna, you know, change their mind about that. Like I, I notoriously, um, went to an event for, Knives Out last year. Remember events and other people? Um, yeah. And, uh, got introduced to Daniel Craig. Yeah. And, and at these things, it's very weird. You know, you have a minute or two with them and they're never going to remember what you say. And most people just say, you know, congratulations and I love you in the movie and yada, yada, yada and move on. And it's the same experience. I just, I didn't want to have the same experience. So when we said hello, I said, congratulations on the movie. He said, thank you. And I said, uh, my dad loves James Bond. And you saw him start to like, oh, oh God, another one of these. And I said, but he doesn't really watch your movies. And I wonder why that is. And he laughed like it was legitimately one of the funnier things he'd heard of that day. And I said, in your defense, it started with Pierce Brosnan. But uh, just it's weird. Like, he loves Connery, but you little lukewarm on. And he said, my family is the same. Like, there's something about, you know, um the older generation's love of Connery and also the fact that I got to make fun of Daniel Craig and he accepted it. So I guess that's a humble brag. And then he punched you in the throat and walked away. I, I it gasping would have been air. acceptable, but no, like, like stuck around for a minute or two. There's a, there's a picture on Instagram somewhere of him. Someone took of him like laughing in the midst of me talking to him where I'm like, haha, I have evidence. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, as a general rule at these events, I'm much more fond of like take the piss out of someone, have a laugh and move on because it doesn't matter. Like no one, you know, they, you know, the studio obviously wants you to be impressed by them for purposes of predictions and, and so on and so forth for them. You know, it's like politicians, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands. So if they get a, like a laugh out of it, I, I, I at least feel like there's an off chance that if, you know, your paths cross again, they might go, Oh yeah, you're the one who made fun of me. You, you fuck. And then he punches me. Mm-hmm. And it, even yeah. if it, they don't remember, it leaves you with a moment and, and a story to tell. Not I met so and so, shook his hand, told them I liked their film. They walked away and did the same with a hundred other people. But you have something unique and, and memorable. Oh yeah, I enjoy watching 
other people who don't have a plan when they go in to talk to someone. Because a lot of times these events, you know, you get a very brief amount of time together. But there's this moment of after you say, like, I loved you in the movie or whatnot, where everyone's just silent. And one of you know, you're waiting for, like, either a publicist to pull the person away or, like, a clear, like, end to the conversation. And every once in a while, I've seen, I've been in a conversation with someone, you know, for, you know, one of their movies. And nobody comes to take anyone away. And we both have nothing left to say. So you're just kind of both taking up space together. And it's a very awkward moment, but kind of fun. Because suddenly there's nothing to talk about. So you wonder, like, so what am I going to talk about with, like, Doug, you know, uh, was it Doug Jones, the the guy from uh, the Guillermo del Toro movies? Yeah. Yeah, we're just, like, at a table together. Like, so, so uh, what's up? You know, you just you just start to have a conversation. And you're like, okay. Um, and you just hope the other person isn't like, I really wish they'd put take this person away from me now. I'm, I'm done with them. Uh, though... One of my favorite moments from that same event, this is a different event, this was a Christmas party, was, um, so it was the year of the shape of water. Guillermo del Toro, Doug Jones, like a lot of people were there. Guillermo del Toro was working the room very nicely, like having a good time. But one of the, uh, one of uh, a girl, a female writer that I know, she was a little drunk and mistook a different writer for Guillermo del Toro. <gasps> yeah. And I decided not to tell her. And uh this is like a solid minute of hey, I like the conversation is hey, great to see you. And the other writer is like, Great to see you, like doesn't know who she is though. And she's like, I really love your work, and he's kind of flattered and like, Really? I'm like, thanks. And she starts talking about it, and I it takes him a while to realize that she's not praising his writing, but talking about Guillermo del Toro's films. And it was um a highlight when I finally was like, um, that's not Guillermo. It was so good. I, uh, I may be going to hell for it, but it was worth it. I was going to say, yeah, there'll be some special days in hell for you for that. one. Oh, she, she forgave me almost immediately because it's funny. Like immediately it becomes funny after you stop being embarrassed. Uh, Yeah. Again, she, she has a great story to tell now. Not the best, you know, for her, but no, you lean into that story. Who was the writer? Oh, I didn't, I didn't say I'll tell you guys off the air, just in case, just in case I miss, uh, misreading it. And one or both are like, that fucking story sucked. <laughs> um, but, uh, for the moment we'll wrap up, uh, next week, we may be able to get deeper into Mank. We'll have, uh, hopefully less anxiety about the election, though. Our luck will be like, we just want to know who won Iowa. Um, but for the moment we, uh, we gave our, our bond recommendations and such. So we'll, we'll come back to some other stuff, but, uh, you know, leave us a comment. When you have a chance on the site, ask us a question. Uh, we'll talk video games if you want. We're, we're trained monkeys. Just tell us what you need. We, uh, we'll work for food and praise. But, uh, for the moment, I, I've been Joey and I'm with, uh, Steve and Miles. You guys can say goodbye and we will talk to you all next week. Bye everybody. Have a good week. Oh wait, no. Hold on. Very nice. Oh, that was last week. <laughs> that was last week. Yeah, Great uh, success. Now, now the, the the impersonations are getting better. Yeah. Now that no one can. Now that we're a week away. So okay. Now we're gonna cosplay. Which one of you is Rudy? Not it. Up, oh, Steve. Son of a bitch. No, no. Steve, coming next week.
Steve as America is made. I'm, I'm, I'm on a bed right now with my hands in my pants. Is that close enough? Well, it, how old is your wife? Much younger than Rudy, but older than uh, Maria. Good Spoken answer. like a true politician. <laughs> and with that, we'll end.